This week's podcast is brought to you by Cisco. Cisco's purpose is to power an inclusive future for all. They securely connect students, teachers, and administrators, no matter where they are, so that learning never stops. Whether you're in schools, reimagining your campus, or providing secure remote access for distance learning, count on Cisco to help you every step of the way. Hello, and welcome to the EdSurge podcast, where each week we look at how education is changing. I'm Rebecca Koenig, a reporter and editor here at EdSurge. The way we talk about something, the story we tell ourselves and others, however accurate or inaccurate, has power. That observation comes from a new book about teen parents, what it takes to help them thrive in higher ed, and why it may be time to rethink the stories we tell about students who have children. For this week's EdSurge podcast, we spoke with the book's author, Nicole Lynn Lewis. She's the founder of a nonprofit called Generation Hope, which serves young parents who aspire to graduate from college. And she just published a memoir called Pregnant Girl about her own experience trying to earn her degree while caring for her baby daughter. I don't want to give away too much, so here's my conversation with Nicole Lynn Lewis. Nicole, you and I have a few things in common. Uh, We both grew up in Virginia, aspiring to be writers. We both went to the College of William and Mary, where we endured the thrill and the terror of doing English honors theses. Uh, And we both met our future life partners there. But as I discovered in your book, there are a few big ways in which college was very different for me than it was for you. You were one of very few black students at William and Mary, and I was one of very many white students. Uh, And as the title of your book gives away, you enrolled as a brand new mother. Uh, And because you make this point, um, which I I take seriously, that pregnancy is not the first thing that happens in the life of a teen mom, nor should it be the last, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about who you were as a teenager before college, Who was Nicole growing up in Virginia aspiring to write? So Nicole was uh, really focused on being a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist one day and traveling the world and breaking stories and making a difference with my, my pen and paper. I, from a very young age, was a writer. I would gobble up any piece of paper I could find. Sometimes my mom would get mad at me because it would be her shopping list. And (laughs) I would be writing poems and all sorts of things. And that flourished into writing for my school newspaper, also writing for the Virginian Pilot, our regional uh, paper that you're probably familiar with, and being a student correspondent. And so I was really focused on that. And I also was involved in so many clubs, activities that you can think of at my school, uh, present of the French Honors Society, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So I was always busy, always writing, always reading, um, and really loved school, loved school and and loved all the things that came with it. Uh, And in your senior year, your life changed a bit, your life changed pretty significantly. Um, And you write about how, you know, as an adult, you've come to learn why this, you know, was not just some accident, really, that that there were, were some um, extenuating factors that made this change, you know, more likely to take place in your life. And I wonder if you could 
tell us, you know, what happened and, and give us the context that you kind of learned later about what influenced the situation. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, starting with my home, um, I, I was raised by two, uh, college educated middle-class parents who were really passionate about education and, uh, instilled that in my sister and I, from a really young age, the importance of education, not just the economic value, but also, um, the value of finding your voice and kind of becoming the person that you are meant to be, uh, and while my parents really instilled that importance of education and, and really encouraged my sister and I to pursue our dreams and our passions, I grew up in a house with a, a lot of fighting, a lot of anger, a lot of chaos. And uh, I knew that anger and chaos from a very early age. And so it really, for me, um, created an instability, I think, that uh, as as much of a rock star student I was, I was constantly kind of yearning to anchor myself to something and to have some stability in my life. Um, so not only was that going on and happening, but now as a, as a social entrepreneur and working in the education space and coming to really understand um, the context of my pregnancy, not only in my family, but also in our country, um, understanding as a Black uh, teenager, uh, all of the things that were working against me, <laughs> you know, even before my pregnancy in terms of being able to uh, get into college and complete college and to be successful in life. And so I talk in the book about the underlying issues, race being a very prominent one that really uh, is at play when it comes to whether young people are going to be successful, whether they are going to be able to overcome limited opportunities that are prevalent in communities of color. And all of those things were also at play in my life. I didn't realize as a teenager, but have definitely come to understand uh, the underlying things that are at play for teen parents in particular, but for all youth in this country that were influencing my situation. And you also talk about how, you know, access to reproductive health information and reproductive health care comes into play. Um, the situation in the country at the time with all of the discourse about teen motherhood, even though um, I grew up not too, too much longer. It was pretty shocking to read about the vilification that, that was taking place at the time. Yeah. Um, you know, again, not knowing what I was kind of um, uh, operating within as a teen mother at the time, but uh, there was so much negative um, and inaccurate information that was really being pushed out with a political agenda um, on both sides of the aisle, quite frankly, around uh, young mothers, around single mothers that created a very contentious and um, difficult situation for any young person who found themselves in that situation, and particularly for black and brown um, teens who found themselves in that situation. And that political agenda, you know, even further limited opportunities, even further made it difficult for uh, teen moms to graduate from high school, to get their college degrees, to have the resources, uh, housing, you know, food, all of those things that are necessary for them to take care of their families. 
And, you know, as a teen, I thought, oh gosh, teen pregnancy must be at its highest rates, you know, because of all of that discourse. And then in writing the book, I found out that it was actually on a steady decline uh, at the time that we were hearing all of these kind of uh, heightened crisis type of messaging um, that was really supposed to influence, you know, the lack of support out there. So it, all of this suddenly made it difficult for this star student to graduate from high school. Um, and you, you wrote in the book that uh, during one of the most difficult and pivotal times in my life, it was people who made sure I graduated from high school. I was interested in this because nowadays there's lots of interventions designed to help students succeed, many of them reliant on technology, or other kinds of, you know, digital nudges or interventions. Uh, and I wondered if you could talk more about why people were were the factor that, that helped you get through this time. I think that um, connection is huge for young people. I mean, connection is huge for all of us, no matter how old we are. <laughs> um, but for young people in particular, uh, having champions and having cheerleaders is not something that can you can replace uh, with technology. It's something that needs to be happening. Social capital needs to be happening in the lives of all young people. And the reality is it's not for so many young people across the country. They don't have champions. They don't have cheerleaders. They don't have people who can see their situations and say, I still see the potential in you and I still see um, a future for you. And, and that was critical in my situation. You know, I was, uh, I left my parents home. I had serious issues with transportation, just getting to school, which is very common for young parents. Um, so absences became a big, big issue for me. So here I was this honor roll student and, you know, months away from graduation, but I was now at risk of not graduating, uh, not because of my smarts, uh, but because I was just having a hard time getting to school and that, you know, a technology uh, solution would not have, have been able to help me at that point. I really needed somebody who was in a position of power, uh, who was um, both my high school principal, but also my guidance counselor who said, you know what, we're going to figure this out and, and make sure that we have a waiver in place and that we make sure you're on track to graduate. So I think um, even in the work that I do today with my organization, those relationships and those champions are a key, key part of the way that we rally around our students. You uh, write in the book about all of the statistics that indicate why moving on and succeeding in higher ed is harder for black students, for low-income students, for students who have kids. And yet you also write that um, when someone discovers a pregnancy, this is the time we need to remind them of their strength, encourage them to soar, and give them the chance to succeed. And I wondered if you could... um, kind of integrate those two ideas for me. The fact that we know statistically it's harder and yet we we have to encourage them to keep trying. I would say, what is our alternative? Um, we don't have any other option um, because we know all the things that these young people are up against, particularly coming out of communities of color, trying to get uh, their high school diploma, trying to get a post-secondary credential. 
if we discourage them with the shaming that, that we often use around teen pregnancy, we're making it even more difficult for them and also for their children. I mean, for teen parents, what comes into play very quickly is that this is not just about that young person, that teenager. It's also about that little one that's coming into the world. And, and that child deserves every opportunity to succeed that we can give them. So if we are going to use shame and, and stigma uh, when a young person discloses their pregnancy that they're expecting, then we're also, we have to accept the fact that we're creating an additional hurdle uh, for them and for their child and, and that's something that I think is happening every day. Uh, and we have the power to change that. After the break, we talk about why higher education and early education are related. Stay with us. You're reinventing education models in real time. The rise of distance and hybrid learning means staff and students are relying on your systems like never before. But you also need solutions that are simple to use, work together seamlessly, and are backed by world-class support. That's why educators everywhere trust Cisco. Cisco's purpose is to power an inclusive future for all. They securely connect students, teachers, and administrators, no matter where they are, so the learning never stops. Whether you're in schools, reimagining your campus, or providing secure remote access for distance learning, count on Cisco to help you every step of the way. Join Cisco at ISTE Live 2021 to build a bridge to the future of education together. Plus, attend three Cisco sessions and automatically receive a Cisco-branded coffee mug and be entered for your chance to win a pair of Apple AirPods. One winner will be chosen on Monday and Tuesday of the show. Valid for U.S. participants only. Learn more at cs.co slash 21 That's cs.co slash 21 Now back to the episode. Why is childcare a higher education issue? And why is higher education an early childhood education issue? How are these tied both in your life and then also, you know, through the work that you now do as a nonprofit leader? I love that question because I think particularly as we are now talking about childcare more and more, uh, we talk about it in the context of workforce and we very rarely talk about it in the context of education. But for me, those two things were highly, highly intertwined. Um, and the connection between uh, a, a child care, education and getting into the workforce, you know, but it's like uh, we often leave out that that child that education link. For me, if I didn't have childcare lined up, I wasn't going to class. I mean, that is the reality of it. I wasn't going to be able to show up. And that's what happens every day for parenting college students across the country. If you don't have reliable childcare, you are not able to go to class. And that we know creates this spiral effect of missing courses and missing tests and missing essays and group work that, again, is not about your smarts or your ability or your cognitive kind of aptitude. It's really about life getting in the way and a system that is really hard to access. It's hard to access affordable, reliable, high-quality childcare uh, as a low-income student. And um, 
And, and we know that that has not only implications for your ability to earn a post-secondary credential, but also for your ability to get into those family-sustaining jobs that are really necessary for you to support your family. Um, I was so encouraged by the American Families Plan that you know Biden released um, not too long ago because it had all of these really important initiatives around affordable childcare and universal pre-K, but um, again, was really within the context of jobs. And I'm hoping that more people, particularly particularly in higher ed, can help to elevate this as not only a um, as a workforce issue, but it's a higher ed and education issue. And it's something and, and early childhood education is critical, not only for little ones, but also for parents. I do have a vested interest in in knowing the the experience that you had on campus, because I do know a few of the people who you mentioned in your book. But I was curious how how did professors and other students and administrators handle a a teen mom showing up on campus how did people treat you how did you feel when you were there i felt um immediately like i was othered coming onto campus it was very clear to me that not only did i stick out like a sore thumb because i was one of very few black students as you mentioned at william and mary but also I was an anomaly in that I was a mom and I was parenting. Um, And so that was very clear to me. I talk about, you know, stepping foot on campus and feeling like these feet don't belong here. I felt that immediately uh, on on the William & Mary campus, um, even at orientation, just feeling, looking around at the sea of faces and kind of knowing that I was uh, an irregularity in a lot of different ways and and feeling um, completely disconnected. I, I talk about not having... Uh, an orientation guide who really understood my situation and kind of abandoned me after a little while, you know? Uh, So it was very, very clear that I stuck out like a sore thumb. Um, You know, I, it was 50, 50 in terms of how people would receive the information about me being a parent. I had some uh, students who were really excited and loved the idea that, oh my gosh, I want to meet your daughter and play with her. And, you know, this is so cool. And then I had other students who weren't supportive at all. And if we had a group project together, you know, made it really difficult for me to participate, choosing times to get the group together and places that I couldn't access as a parenting student. Um, And same thing with professors. I very rarely disclosed that I was a mom to my professors because I had had some bad experiences where it became almost punitive in in the way that I might have been treated because I had a baby. Um, But there were some professors, and I do talk about them in the book, that uh, that were supportive and were really impressed, you know, with my ability to kind of keep all the balls in the air. But like many parenting students, you take a chance when you disclose that you're a parent. And um, and I felt that at William & Mary. One thing I was struck by was all of the time that you had to spend not only being a mother, but also uh, figuring out childcare, figuring out health insurance, all of the hours that it sounds like you spent taking care of yourself and your family that I spent, you know, running around campus, going to club meetings, you know, basically not doing these very serious things. And it seems like for someone who was so involved in many different activities in high school, this was something that you that you didn't have in college. It was very different than what you had experienced in high school. Yeah, I definitely wasn't able to tap into the social 
kind of extracurricular aspects of William and Mary. And there were so many wonderful things that I remember being like, oh, you know, I would love to be a part of this club or I'd love to do this. And as you said, I was so involved in high school that it was it was very different in that sense. And I did feel like, wow, there are things that I'm not able to really take advantage of in these four years that I would love to take advantage of. I think you mentioned the honors thesis. That was my one thing where I was like, yes, <laughs> I can do this. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, student parents, your time is shredded. You have 50% less time to work on coursework than, than your peers, never mind to get involved in your campus community. And so that was definitely something that I I felt at the time and would have loved to been, you know, more involved in the campus community. I would love to hear about your honors thesis. It sounds like it was really interesting and really meaningful to you. Yeah, I was so excited about the opportunity to do a creative writing thesis. I mean, I, it felt like, wow, this is an opportunity for me to do something that I love to write and to do creative writing as an English major, you're often doing this analytical writing, which I love too, but you know, this was just a different opportunity for me to stretch that muscle. And honestly, creative writing had been something I had done all my life as you know, throughout my childhood. But when I got pregnant, became a mom, it just was something that I couldn't, I didn't have the time, you know, to sit down and write poetry like I wanted and all of those things. So it represented an opportunity to kind of find my voice again. Um, And I wanted to concentrate on the experiences of Black women throughout history. And so wrote a series of stories, I think 10 uh, short stories about Black women in different points of time in history, from slavery to Jim Crow to present day, um, and just kind of exploring what their experiences might have been. And it, it was really important for me um, in, in terms of, like I said, just having the space to find my voice and be creative. And that's something that I know we talk about college in this very economic you know, ROI type of way, but I would hope that people after reading the book would also see that you know, it gives young people and and people of any age getting their degree an opportunity to find their voice and to discover their passions um, in a really amazing way. And so I hope that we also start talking about the benefits of college in that way too. I was really struck by that, that the, uh, the difference between the periods of your life that felt very busy and chaotic, and then the times at which you were able to carve out peace for yourself and time to think um, and and how those periods really meant a lot to you, but also helped you get organized and think ahead and get to your next place. Yeah, and that's so crucial. And I think particularly for for young parents um, and parenting students, there's there's more of the chaotic times than there are of the peaceful times where you just have a moment to say, who am I? What do I want to do with my life? How do I want to show up in the world? Um, how can I do more of the things that I love? And so I'm thankful for my time at William and Mary because I was able to carve out some of those uh, spaces for myself that were really critical, I think, in making me the person that I am today. You did graduate, and now you uh, you have created uh, a nonprofit organization, and I'd love to hear more about how it works and who you serve. 
So about 11 years ago, I started an organization called Generation Hope, and it really uh, came out of my experience as a teen mom in college and wanting to make sure that more young parents had the same kind of opportunity to earn a post-secondary credential. And um, our mission is to help teen parents in the D.C. region earn their college degrees, uh, as well as helping their children get ready for kindergarten at the same time. So that kind of connects back to your question around the importance of early childhood education for this population. Um, and now we also advocate nationally for the needs of parenting students all across the country. And um, our direct service work in the DC region is really about uh, kind of wrapping our students in all of the resources and supports that they might need to make it to the graduation stage. And that's both emotional and financial. So emotional includes those champions, those cheerleaders. We have a robust mentoring program where we match each of our students with a mentor in the community. We have an amazing program team who we call Hope Coaches, and they work closely with a mentor and that student to navigate anything, not just academics, but life, you know, anything that comes up. Um, we create a village around them. It can be extremely isolating to be a parenting student, as I kind of described. And so you get to connect with other students who are going through the same thing that you're going through and kind of become a support system for one another. Um, we do stuff throughout the year from Valentine's Day parties to uh, workshops and trainings, all sorts of things. We also provide career readiness supports and mental health supports on staff for both parent and child. Um, and through the, the monetary support, we provide tuition assistance. We have an emergency fund with a very quick turnaround time when there's a crisis that comes up. Um, and we collect tangible items in the community. And then on our early childhood side, you know, helping our little ones get ready for kindergarten, we have a whole home visiting program that allows us to work really closely with parents to be their child's first teacher, really, and um, do developmental screenings. We bring brand new books into the home. We provide monetary support to access high quality child care, all sorts of things through that program as well. And, you know, several years ago, we recognized that we're seeing just tremendous uh, impact with this direct service work. Our scholars graduate at a rate that's higher than the national average for any college student. So we're seeing real, you know, gains with this holistic approach. But we also recognize that there are some serious systemic challenges across the higher ed sector that um, really inhibit this population from uh, getting to the graduation stage. And in order for us to have a broader impact, we wanted to make sure that there was an arm of our programming that was focused on helping more institutions um, enhance their supports for student parents and also helping policymakers really understand the experiences of this population. And so that's our new national work that we're really proud of. And I think you also are doing work to help colleges as institutions uh, better serve these students. Can you talk a little more about that? Our technical assistance program for colleges and universities across the country is called Family U. And it's all about really partnering with, uh, with colleges and universities to help them step up their supports for this population. You know, most colleges are not tracking the parenting status of their students. I remember when I started Generation Hope and I thought, oh, I'll just go to all the colleges in the D.C. region and ask them how many student parents they serve. <laughs> and people were like, we don't track that. Um, so from a very basic standpoint, most, most institutions have no idea how many students on their campus are parenting and are really flying blind. 
in terms of what uh, that population looks like and what their needs are. So we have um, a a cohort uh, opportunity where we work with five institutions over a two-year period to really help them first kind of understand the basic components of student parent success, to put some uh, mechanisms in place to track their parenting status, and then also to be a support to them as they implement some student parent initiatives across their uh, institutions. We're so excited about that. We're launching our first cohort this summer in the Mid-Atlantic region, and we'll be having more over the the next few years. And it's just been a wonderful opportunity and a nice extension of the work that we've done um, in the DC region. One final question for you. Um, You mentioned that uh, it has seemed important to you in your experience to ask questions instead of making assumptions, to not prescribe pathways for people, and to celebrate who the individual is. Uh, I wonder if you could talk more about that philosophy, about not necessarily starting with some end goal that you, as, as this nonprofit expert, has dreamed up, but starting with this teen mom where she is. I think the first thing that is really important to ask any young person is kind of what brings you joy? Um, you know, what are you passionate about? What are you excited about? And many of our programs make assumptions and assume what's best for a young person and what should bring them joy. And I think particularly for low-income students, for marginalized students, for first-gen students, for parenting students, we almost prescribe what they should be happy with. You know, this is what you should be happy to receive and and earn as a post-secondary credential. Um, I have so many people say to me, well, why don't you just focus on um, certificate programs, you know, and and help this population become mechanics or cosmetologists? This is probably the better option for them. And, you know, my response is, if that's what a young parent or a parenting student wants to do, I'm all for it. But um, I'm not all for it if it's not what they want to do, if it's not what brings some joy and they should have the same freedom and flexibility and opportunity as a higher resourced uh, student has in making those decisions about their lives. And so at Generation Hope, that's what we're all about. We kind of figure out what, where's your joy? What, you know, what could you do? Would you want to do if there were no confines uh, in front of you? And once we have that answer, our job is to help to make that happen for them. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate it. Thank you. This has been the EdSurge Podcast. Each week, we bring you stories like this one. If you like the show, please share it on social media or tell a friend. And we hope you'll subscribe to the EdSurge Podcast so you don't miss future episodes. For more coverage of how education is changing, sign up for EdSurge newsletters or check out our website, edsurge.com. There's even a newsletter for this podcast. Just go to the EdSurge homepage and click on Newsletters at the top right to sign up. This episode was written by me, Rebecca Koenig, and you can find me on Twitter at Becky underscore Koenig. Editing this episode was done by Jeff Young. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.